Welcome back to SUMA Observations and Conversations, a podcast by Southern Utah Museum of Art, where we talk to artists, curators, art historians, and staff about what's happening at SUMA. I'm Emily Ronquillo, SUMA's Manager of Marketing and Communication, and your host for the show. This is the second part of a three-part episode where I have a conversation with Dr. Becky Bloom, SUMA Assistant Director of Curatorial Affairs, and Museum Associate Courtney Blue about the work she's done for the museum during her recent internship experience. Courtney had the chance to curate two online exhibitions, and in this episode, we will discuss Psychedelia, the Art of the Fillmore West, which she curated under the guidance of Dr. Bloom. In our discussion, we talk about rock and roll concert posters created in the 1960s and 70s, touching on Courtney's research process, the progression of poster art, and the artists behind the designs. I hope you find this episode enlightening as you learn more about psychedelic art and how these came to be part of Suma's collection. We've been mentioning the quote-unquote rock posters. We'll probably keep referring to them as the rock posters throughout this podcast episode. But if you aren't familiar with them, maybe to jog your memory, we did have an exhibition of them in the main gallery in the summer of 2017 called The Summer of Love. And we were able to show a lot of what's part of that collection So, Becky, can you tell us a little bit more about the rock posters? What are they? If someone's never seen these before, give us just the quick rundown. Okay, so we have concert posters advertising rock and roll shows, but not exclusively rock and roll. I mean, we have a really good one of Aretha Franklin, who we'll call her music. They're music concerts. So they were collected by Scott Jones, who's the oldest brother of Jimmy Jones, the great regional painter and the great patron of SUMA before it was SUMA. He donated his final 15 paintings. He's a landscape painter, if you don't know Jimmy. The Jones family were from Cedar City, so a lot of local people knew Jimmy and his family really well, have portraits of their aunt painted by Jimmy, have Jimmy's in their house. So Jimmy's a real iconic artist, regionally, but also locally, very locally. So he donated, in addition to a number of his paintings, including his final 15, his collection of these concert posters and handbills, which are basically like promotional postcards that will have the same kind of image that were on the poster version, We'll have that, and then on the back, we'll have some additional information about like a calendar of events, that kind of thing, like other upcoming concerts. So would be more handed out on street corners versus stapled to telephone poles on Haight-Ashbury, something like that. So they're all collected from San Francisco because Scott Jones moved there from Cedar City in the late 60s and lived and worked there and had an intimate connection to the Fillmore West, which was one of the iconic concert venues in San Francisco. So he was also doing accounting for the Butterfield Blues Band, which is maybe a lesser known (laughs) 1960s rock band. But we know that he had like this whatever access to the Fillmore because these posters and handbills are in mint condition. So it's not like he was collecting them again, kind of peeling them off of scaffolding or telephone poles. They don't have any, you know, staple marks or weathering. And we have multiples of them. So we'll have four handbills from of one type or three posters of one type. So he was clearly kind of grabbing them off the top of the stack. So we have, I think, listed like 415 handbills and posters, but that includes multiples of some of them. 
We have a whole range of designs, whether it's photo collages to the very sort of typical psychedelic imagery, everything everything. So it's a very comprehensive collection. And I should say too, it's not exclusively from Fillmore West. Some of the concerts are from like the Hollywood Bowl that we have an Iggy Pop one. That's one of my favorites. So a couple that are from other concert venues, either in San Francisco or in Los Angeles. So this is one of the many, many gifts that Jimmy Jones gave to Suma. This is one of them. If his paintings are kind of the crown jewel of our collection, this is certainly one of like I don't know, to run with this metaphor, one of like the side gems. The side gems. (laughs) So we have this large amount of posters. You're saying 400. And Courtney's been able to curate this online exhibition that features 12, which is, I think, just a huge accomplishment in and of itself of being able to figure out what to pick to highlight um, in this way beyond then doing all of your research and writing about those pieces. So Courtney, how how did you do that? What was your process going into this? Well, I had to think back because it was almost a year ago, but I do remember opening up our folder that we have with everything and just scrolling through what we had, kind of glossing over everything, and it was very overwhelming. Really cool, but very overwhelming. Um, so I looked to some books that we had just in the back office somewhere. There was one that was really helpful called, I think it's called The Art of the Fillmore West. And I just looked through that and there's artist bios in there. So I was reading through the artist bios and started to be drawn to a couple of the artists. So then I started looking through what we had of each artist. And that's kind of how I decided which artist to highlight. So I wanted to have some sort of narrative or some sort of cohesion to the exhibition. So I chose four artists. I chose Wes Wilson, Bonnie McLean, Lee Conklin, and David Singer. And then I decided to choose three posters per artist. But I think a few of the ones I put in the exhibition are handbills. But those would have been printed as handbills and as posters. I know because one of them I also had in my college dorm room. (laughs) Not in the 60s. I'm not that old. But (laughs) a vintage poster vibe. I tried to choose artists and posters that were both important to the story of the Fillmore West and had interesting stories that would be fun to tell to the public. So like Wes Wilson, he was the first poster artist for the Fillmore West. He was kind of the pioneer of the psychedelic style, along with Bonnie McLean, who often gets overlooked because Wes Wilson in the beginning of the Fillmore West was designing the posters and Bonnie McLean was designing the chalkboard inside of the venue that would show the day's lineup. So she was kind of developing the style along with Wes Wilson, but her work would get erased at the end of every day. Wow, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. And then once Wes Wilson left, Bonnie McLean took over his role in creating the posters. And then there were many other artists who took on that role throughout the years. But I chose Lee Conklin because he kind of embodies the extremes of the psychedelic style. And I think his work is really fun and trippy and kind of strange to look at. His work is one of the highlights of the Rock Poster Collection. David Singer I chose because he marked kind of the departure from the iconic psychedelic style. People started to get tired of it after a while. They probably got tired of not being able to read the names. That's exactly what it was. (laughs) They're like, I I mean, I want to come to a concert, but I'm not going to pay $5 for... Also, it's crazy how cheap the prices are. (laughs) $20, not, you know, even... I mean, they're all like $5 for like a full day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
And so like Lee Conklin, if you look at the exhibition, one of his posters, the it's the one with the, it's kind of like a, a gray woman with these tangling arms that spell out the bands that are going to play for the day. The first time I looked at that, I think I looked at it for about 10 minutes trying to figure out what it said. Like, just staring at it. But that was the point. Legibility was not the goal. No, you want something that's going to catch people's eye and then make them stop and try to figure it out. So they're spending more time looking at it. In the beginning of poster art, the point was that you can read it from 20 feet away. You need to be able to get your point across quickly. But with these posters, the point wasn't that. It was to show what the vibe of the concert was going to be. They were trying to draw in certain people to come to the Fillmore West. When you can't tell what the poster says, you're going to look at it longer. So that was kind of their advertising strategy. What I think is so interesting, because we think today that there's so much deliberateness when it comes to the marketing and promotion of bands. But it originates not with a concert venue, but with the marketing machine of a record company. So when Taylor Swift is, she is a good modern example. When Taylor Swift is going on tour, all of the marketing materials are not produced by the, well, now everything is owned by Ticketmaster, right? (laughs) As we know with Tay Tay. But that that whole machinery is not, maybe, maybe that's part of it, is that it's not within these individual venues anymore, that there there's no such thing as individual venues, really, or individually market. But, like, the independent ones are fewer, fewer yeah. and far between. But when you have a show, you're using the marketing materials provided by the record label from that or the representatives of that artist, right? The musician, not something that is completely created for that specific venue, unless it's something like Bonnaroo or some big festival that or Coachella or something like that, that has its own aesthetic and its own marketing materials, because there's like hundreds of bands playing. Maybe that's sort of the closest I can think of, of something that is not directly connected to the PR mechanisms of contemporary music world. We were talking about this in one of the art and design classes that came for typography. They were doing a concert poster project, so they were using these as sort of inspiration. And if you get hired as a graphic designer, you're getting hired by the band or the record label. You're not really getting hired for, not for specific concerts per se, but maybe for other kinds of marketing for a venue. I think that this is this fascinating era where there's a whole world of artistic production and innovation centered in these specific locations, these specific venues. It was such a strange blip in history because there was a specific community of people that centered around High Ashbury and the Fillmore West in a smaller way. This is like the counterculture movement, the home of the counterculture movement. So bands would come here to be a part of that Mm -hmm. culture. And then once it fell apart, I think advertising moved in a different direction. Yeah. Well, and I think there's a difference, like there's been a shift in the music industry, the side of it, kind of what Becky's talking about, that shifting from venues, doing the promotion to now it's more the artists. And I think some of that can come down to how people discover music, where back decades ago, you were discovering new bands by going to your local venues and that they were listening to the local radio stations. And that's how you're getting exposed to new things. We're now with all of the streaming and just the ease of access of 
everything and even independent artists that there's just other ways of discovering bands so it is put on the artists instead of the venues where venues are like oh you have to like an artist enough to get them to come to the venue so they have to rely more on the artists yeah interesting I also think too about sort of a parallel art aspect or artistic aspect to this time period were album covers. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky enough to kind of inherit my dad's record collection. Now, where do we see cover art or album art? We see it on Spotify and sometimes there's like the animated little loops, right, that play. But it was absolutely critical to the album at that time. And it was artistic, like one of the kids in my daughter's um, daycare had a Sgt. Pepper shirt on today. So I had my dad's Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album by the Beatles. And there were inserts in it that were almost like these little cutout mustaches and lapels. So they, I don't think anybody, well, maybe, I don't know, cut them out or whatever. But there were all these, like the cover art. And of course, everybody's like, what does it mean? <laughs> but all these little like extra little accessories or things that were tucked in on the White Album had four headshots by the Beatles, which I put in my dorm room using the same pinholes that my dad had used in his dorm room. Now we're seeing sort of the resurgence of vinyl and these like limited edition pressing pressings. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I follow Casey Musgrave. So special one. And, the, and then you're really appreciating the record, not just the music, but it as an aesthetic thing and as a physical object as well, because they're doing it in like blue or something like that. So I think that there is now a throwback as more people are produ- well, contemporary artists are producing vinyl and more and more people are collecting vinyl. But I think that kind of goes hand in hand with these concert posters and this whole world of artistic creation that was connected to the artists of the 60s and 70s that doesn't happen as much. The collecting aspect was a huge part of these posters because they would put them on telephone poles and then people would tear them down and put them in their rooms. These posters became so popular that people like Scott were collecting them. And I mean, they were fine art or they became a more respected art medium. Mm -hmm. They became something that, you know, is wider known nationally about these posters. That This isn't unique to SUMA, that you said there are books, there's a lot of things published about these specific artists and these posters, that it's not, it's bigger than just what's in SUMA's collection. I think that we have just an exceptional array. Mm-hmm. And again, the condition of them yeah. is really pristine. So again, I think the one that I had in my, in my dorm room was definitely used. And these ones like don't even have like a bent a edge. Yeah. And they also represent, I think, the printing technology that I can speak very little about in terms of chromolithography and silkscreen. We have some that are silkscreened. The Iggy Pop one that I mentioned is on mirrored paper, like our cardstock, mm-hmm. and has layers of hot pink and black kind it's of gorgeous. playing with this. It's amazing, yeah. which definitely feels much more of like a glam rock kind of 70s vibe. Yeah, a little later. These are, I think, there's so many focusing on the artists that were sort of at the forefront of this artistic style and this particular medium in this time and place, I think is a really cool way to, as like an entry point to looking at these. Cause I feel like your instinct is just to be like, oh cool, this is a Jefferson airplane poster and to kind of prioritize the cool bands that are recognizable. But I think it's really important, especially as an art museum to highlight the artists and the artistry 
and really the innovation, like the graphic innovation and the yes. technology that really goes into this art form. But I think there are more projects to be done with this because there's all kinds of different styles, pop cultural references that I don't even think we as Gen Z slash elder millennials um, maybe have access to. The repurposing of images of that today would definitely be about yeah cultural appropriation and even um, really kind of problematic racist imagery from old advertising from mm-hmm. the earlier part of the 20th century. Just the way that images and imagery is recycled on one hand and collaged and then this whole innovation of what has become just known as psychedelic imagery. It, there's a lot that can be explored further. So maybe more more projects for future interns. There are hundreds of more posters, but I think it was important for me to focus on telling the story of the Fillmore West and the evolution of the style. I think that kind of leads into this. You were able to highlight the four different artists and then pick three of their works. And so, yeah, can you tell us more about, are you doing bookend from the start to the end or just kind of... Kind of I'm the not beginning. sure if Wes Wilson is definitely the beginning. I'm yeah. not sure if David Singer was the end towards the end, definitely. But No, but definitely is some of the big innovators, I would say. Yes, definitely. Wes Wilson was the first artist, and he is known as the pioneer of the psychedelic style. In the beginning of the psychedelic style, it was a little more Art Nouveau-inspired, a lot of flowing lines and flowery imagery and naked women with flowing hair. So I think he was an important innovator, but eventually he had a falling out with Bill Graham. It's highlighted in one of the poster selections. It's the one with the snake at the bottom. Bill Graham was the owner of the Fillmore West. He was the, what do they call it? The, uh, the promoter. The promoter. There's a aficionado <laughs> or something. There's some, there's some word I can't remember anymore. So all of the posters say like Bill Graham presents. Yes. Yeah. He is the person running the Fillmore West. He was hiring the artist. And him and Wes Wilson had a falling out over payment. And his last poster of his first stint at the Fillmore West, he caricatures Bill Graham as a snake with a dollar sign on its nose and a swastika on its head. And Bill Graham actually was a German Jewish immigrant who survived the Holocaust as a child. So you can imagine Slightly offensive. Wes Wilson was fired promptly. So that was the end of his first moment at the Fillmore West. And after that, Bonnie McLean became the next big poster artist there. And she actually had a relationship with Bill Graham. But she was an amazing artist. And she was actually, fun fact, the only poster artist at the Fillmore West who remained drug-free. The only one to not... (laughs) Use psychedelics. <laughs> so is able to just be creative without drugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so eloquent. Which is I was trying to find a better way to put it, but I was without, like, like nope. altering your without, brain chemistry. Yes. Yeah, without like, she just liked mind being altering. there and experiencing the vibe, but she's starkly contrasted by Lee Conklin, who mm-hmm. was an avid user and I is Lee Con- Conklin the one with all the weird He's body parts? He's mostly yes. like lava lamp kind of looking ones. No, that or... one's that one is who's the first guy? That's Wes Wilson. Wilson. Wes Wilson is more like yeah, the flowing, flowy, like oh, like lava yeah. lamp text, okay. meandering text. Lee um. Conklin looks like piles of mush and body parts. Exactly, yeah. they are body so parts. So they are body parts in mush. 
for anybody who knows anything about like 90s animation, I feel like Ren and mm. Stimpy with like weird stuff because it's like grotesque but in a comedic, comic-y kind of way. Mm-hmm. But then you look closer, you're like, is this body parts? Is that a yeah. foot? That I feel like Ren and Stimpy kind of has a similar vibe anyway. <laughs> is that a bull wearing high heels? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the point that Lee Conklin came to the Fillmore West everyone wanted to work at the Fillmore West because at that point they were having big names and there was a huge community growing around it. So Lee Conklin brought in his portfolio and Bill Graham looked at it and said, yep, you're hired. (laughs) (laughs) You're just weird enough, Mm right? So when you think of psychedelic imagery, I feel like he comes the closest to that weird, bad trip vibe. Yeah, Yeah, definitely more bad trip vibe. Yeah. (laughs) But contrasting to Lee Conklin is David Singer, who at the point where he came to the Fillmore West, people were tired of not being able to read the posters. Because <laughs> Lee Conklin's basically indecipherable. Like, it takes forever to figure out what they say. But David Singer brought his work into the Fillmore West, and Bill Graham was, he was ready for something new. And David Singer had lettering that was a lot more clean, kind of going back to the 1950s poster style. And he also was doing collage work, which was different than the illustration of past artists. We have a lot of posters that do these kinds of, like I was mentioning, photo collages, like Michelangelo's David, but done in this kind of kaleidoscope. It's fascinating to me mm-hmm. to see how a Renaissance era engraving can be turned psychedelic when you introduce like a giant cat into it. <laughs> there's all these different ways that the artists are appropriating or reappropriating or recontextualizing either known or relatively known images, whether they're photographs or other kinds of artworks, which is a, another really fascinating kind of design style of these posters. Were you able to find out any research on kind of how long it would take an artist to produce a single poster? Because based off of my, you know, working knowledge of producing posters for the museum and even having two designers and just when we get the information to getting it out, printed, distributed, I can imagine something like this. Like, what is their turnaround time? Do we know? I think the turnaround time is pretty quick. Like, they were having weekly shows more than once a week. Yeah, I guess um, it has to keep up with whatever to, the rate of their bookings were, that if it's... Right. Well, know. and just how intricate they are is, like, that's what's interesting to me because it's just how quickly they're able to draw some very detailed work. I think, I'm not quite sure, but I think I do remember reading something about Lee Conklin where he was saying he was making them quickly, but I think there may have been some <laughs> drug some, use involved Yeah, that was that. drug-enhanced <laughs> speed. Yeah. <laughs> Or you just have the concept and then you're like, I'm just going to throw the band names in. Yeah, so. well, that's what also makes it yeah, exceptional that yeah. there's like, that the, the image very rarely has anything to do with the band. No. Yeah. Like maybe some of the psychedelic ones, again, as Courtney said, it's like the vibe. Yes. But I don't think anybody's vibe is Lee Conklin's <laughs> vibe. I think this is pretty like heavy metal. So wow. maybe like Ozzy Osbourne biting the head off the bat or something would feel more of that ilk. But this is, again, so brightly colored that you're kind of caught off guard when you realize how grotesque it is. Mm-hmm. Bonnie McLean has one for Martha and the Vandellas. Is that the one? Yes. Which was a, I don't know if they were a Motown, but an all black women's group. Mm-hmm. And the women in the poster are definitely not black women. 
which we can extrapolate and talk about the problematics of that. But that, again, it's not about accurately depicting the band. It's more about the vibe. So even in that case where it shows three women, it's evoking like a trio, girl group, whatever, but a very different kind of psychedelic vibe than what Martha and the Vandellas music was really like. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's like so surprising to me going through some of these, how infrequently you see photographs of the band. Mm -hmm. So I can think of the Again, the Aretha, Aretha Franklin one, which is like obviously my favorite. There's one in the show that shows the Butterfield Blues Band. Right. That's the only one in the online exhibition. Yeah. And I think there's just maybe a Rolling Stones one that has, I'm just thinking of our yeah. collection. And Aretha Franklin. It's yeah. not a photograph, but it is her. Yeah. Isn't or it? I think it's, it's like a, a hand colored, it's like a very color saturated photograph. Mm. I think that there's a Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young. Yeah. But I feel like that's it's the exception to actually have the actual band. Forget being able to read the band's name. That's one thing. On the other hand, to actually have the band depicted that their own visages or their faces mm-hmm. are integral to promoting their concert was actually quite a rarity, at least of the ones that we have in our collection. So it's fun to find when we're like, oh, this one actually has this photograph of the Rolling Stones or these kinds of moody head shots of Crosby, Sills, Natch and Young, but maybe you had to have already maybe reached a certain level of success to warrant your faces as the promotional image for your concert. Yeah, I'd be interested in researching that a little bit more because it would be kind of interesting to know if it is more on the venue saying like, oh, we're going to use your face because that's going to sell more, or if it's on the band side of them having that material available and getting it to them in time to be used for promotional material. You sound like such a manager. Uh, oh, because I just like <laughs> love music and because design they had and to, marketing. And, but also that you were like, they had yeah. to hit that deadline. Like they had There's to have so images available. Deadli- yeah, like that's what I want to know is what are the deadlines and how are they meeting them? Because like, <laughs> man. I feel like there's also a funny one of Jerry Garcia in one of the posters, just like a Go- goofy, one. goofy Jerry Garcia. I can't remember. Um, Every time I go back there, I find new posters. I have just a vague recollections of what's in my head. I can picture a layout, like, but I can't tell you which band is on which poster. I know there's one of an ice cream cone and American flag. That's a David Singer poster. Yeah. But what's the band? I don't no, remember. I, no it's clue. like <laughs> almost all of the posters have more than one band, like at least three on them. So these were lineups. You're gonna go all night very long all day yeah for the whole experience of the music yeah what was the name of the other so we have the bill graham presents but what was the name of the other the family dog the family dog is the other kind of promoter production production company And just going back to some of the reappropriated, recontextualized, inappropriate in 2023, culturally appropriated images, but the family dog's icon, their little emblem to indicate that they're putting on that concert is a Native American man in a top hat with a pipe which to me evokes sort of cigar or like smoke shop, which maybe Gen Z doesn't remember because we are kind of in a post-smoking society these days. But there is often, I think because of tobacco, where everybody's well, in terms into of vapes, in terms of the promoted. promotion, but also tobacco having this like 
historical connection to indigenous populations of the Americas, but also then becomes the imagery that is attached to cigar shops. There's a wooden Indian outside a lot of cigar or smoke shops, and also in the branding of different cigarette brands. And so you have also, it looks very much, it's this little oval with this bust of this figure smoking the pipe that looks like the label on a cigar. And then you see a lot of Native American imagery. Bonnie McLean's poster that Courtney features as well. on the. This was a common theme in this time. A lot of the people who were taking part in the counterculture movement were white, middle-class, 20-something Americans. And they wanted to rebel against the status quo. So they a lot of times turned to like indigenous and Eastern cultures, appropriating the imagery, the clothing, the religious beliefs, which I think is really interesting. There's like an overall, right, this is post-war, post-World War II, this Cold War era, this age of nuclearization. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world. That's the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. People are getting drafted, young people, friends are coming back in coffins, right? And so I have studied this and learned a lot about this when it comes to sort of the transmission of Asian philosophies and religious systems, especially Buddhism. And it's often characterized as this era of disenchantment with Western civilization. And so where are the alternatives that they're looking to? They're looking east, like far east to Buddhism, right? The Beatles, go back to the Beatles, go to India, along with lots of other people are exploring alternatives to Western religion and social systems. And and I think indigenous ideas and imagery were also, and this is also the beginning of like the civil rights movement when it comes to black Americans, indigenous Americans, that kind of thing, that it's all kind of, but we do see what would be considered very problematic today in the appropriation of this kind of imagery, but it was also a very different time. So one of the posters, one of the Bonnie McLean posters shows a quasi-indigenous totem. Like a um, something that I would say evokes the imagery of like the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. And then another one of the posters, which we just updated it the other day, it shows like an Asian person with this chop suey font, which before I didn't understand the history behind the chop suey font. Previously, the exhibition said that this font was meant to evoke the forms of Asian languages, but it doesn't. It's a font that stereotypes. It's like chop suey, which is an American Chinese food, like much of the Chinese food that we love. They were invented in San Francisco. Yes. (laughs) Just like this font. Yeah. So I think that that's a really appropriate name for it, that it shows these layers kind of of appropriation, appreciation, the slipperiness of that, Mm -hmm. and just how these different cultures and cultural forms and imagery get interpreted through the lens of white middle class artists. And specifically for advertising, whether it's advertising products. I think that there's a lot that could be further explored with regards to the overlaps of advertising. I'm also a big Mad Men fan. (laughs) But seeing how some of these concert posters are pulling of the contemporaneous or the, the advertising culture of that time or what would have been the childhoods of these artists. Hence, like the tobacco reference, like advertising kind of references, among others. Thank you for joining us for another episode of SUMA Observations and Conversations. It's always great to talk to Dr. Becky Bloom and Courtney Blue, especially about works in our collection. I loved learning more about the exhibition Psychedelia, The Art of the Fillmore West, which you can view online through our catalog at Hub, and it's also linked in the description of this episode. 
Coming up next, we continue our conversation with Becky and Courtney by talking about another digital exhibition curated by Courtney, highlighting Japanese woodblock prints in Suma's collection. For more information about our current exhibitions or events, visit our website at su.edu suma or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok at suma underscore museum. This podcast is made possible by partnership with SU's radio station, Thunder 91, and is edited and produced by Emmeline Chittister, Suma Digital Media and PR Associate.